Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. I hope to rekindle what it was like as a kid for some of our listeners here, or maybe for our younger audience trigger more of a recent memory, the crane game. You might not know it by name, but the epiphany of what this game is will happen immediately when I say this, the game with the claw. You know, you put some token into the game, grab the joystick and move the metal claw over a 50 cent prize, which we see as a million dollar once in a lifetime, never before seen relic that would solidify our name in the halls of gaming forever. And once your aim is true and the claw had stopped swaying, slam the little circular plastic button and watch the claw drop onto the target, only to return empty-handed because, in an effort to turn a profit, the owners of the game have wedged each toy together with the spot-welding accuracy so that no one with any sort of muscle could actually pry this toy out of there, with or without a claw. But this isn't an episode about toys, although we've done a few of those. This is an episode about a covert CIA operation to use this crane game concept to reach an object at the bottom of the ocean floor. What are they looking for and how would they do it? And why do they want it? Pour yourself a cup of coffee and tune in. Another chapter is about to be written on this episode of The Missing Chapter. I wanted to take a moment before today's story and wish my wife Erin a very happy birthday. Erin's the glue to our family and a model for Andrew and Nathan. I hope your day, Erin, was as special as you are to us. Welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Horner here with Phil Schaff. Phil, it's February. We're sitting down to a nice pot of uh, Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Guatemala blend. Mm-hmm. It's, it's dark, and uh, it's got a great aroma to it, uh, kind of nutty. Um, but with the creamer that we we put into it, the the, the caramel macchiato, it's got a, a really good combination. It's a good coffee. Speaking of dark, yeah. Have you noticed that outside? Yeah. No. Listen, I thought the days were supposed to get longer had, after December twenty first. The days or get longer, but that doesn't mean you'll ever see the sun in upstate New York. <laughs> we were trying to figure out when the last time the sun actually broke through in upstate New York, and I couldn't think of uh, a day or even yeah, our pale ten, skin ten we're, minute window. We're, we're basically wow. transparent at this point. Yeah, thank goodness for coffee. Thank goodness for podcasts. Thank, yeah. thank goodness for uh, you know good friendships and being able to sit down and do both. Phil. Speaking of that, we had some great uh, emails uh, the past couple months here yeah. with with some of our our fans and, and listeners, and maybe some of our Californian listeners could maybe send some sun our way. That'd be great. That would be great. Um, speaking of not seeing the sun, let's talk bottom of the ocean floor. Bottom of the ocean floor. You were you were giving me pieces of this yeah all right um and your intro i mean i immediately i was thinking oh this is kind of a cool one because it's going to be about the crane it's going to be about (laughs) the the toy which um i mean you can vent all day about that toy yeah but uh no you're you're using it more as like a metaphor and a a nice segue into a a great uh, another one of those cold war espionage cia sort of uh stories for us absolutely someone asked us yesterday just yesterday hey what's your favorite topic to teach and we both immediately actually said cold Cold war War. you know this is great and i feel like the more time that 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 ensues from the cold war 
there's more documents that are being released and, and people are finding out more and more, which is just fascinating. It's a pretty cool time to be in. Speaking of the crane game, we actually got um, our kids a, a, a toy crane game. Yeah. It's just as frustrating as the real thing. I just Does it pick out. up candy? It is picks that, up these I've little, yeah, little candies. You can put whatever you want at the bottom. Yeah. Um, but like I said in the intro, at least we're not trying to like wedge them together so there's mm-hmm. no physical possible way to get it out. But still, quite frustrating. And you know you're going to lose, but you still put money into the game. Of That's course. the frustrating thing oh, yeah. for me. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I'll win it this time. The other 355 times I've played it in my life, I haven't <laughs> won a thing. But this is the time while I'm waiting for my food to be delivered. Like, you know, it, it's usually like at the, the, the front of a restaurant somewhere. I'll play that. So funny you say that because our local uh, Riskany Boulevard Diner in Whitesboro, New York. Mm-hmm. Hello to everybody in uh, Whitesboro. They actually have a crane game, but you play until you win. Right. So every single time we go in, it's a it's an extra dollar. And is know? there a movie that this makes you think of too? Is there a movie? Hmm. Toy Story. Oh God! Right. Yes, of Toy course. Story. Yeah. yeah, with the Martians yeah. too. So that was kind of ad lib. Sure. I, I, I put you on the spot. There. No, that's all right. But as soon as you said it, like, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so all right, the crane game, not essentially the game itself, but the concept. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about that. Uh, I stumbled upon this story from CIA.gov. Um, I sh- certainly want to make sure and mention their name um, because the this entire operation was based around their their ability to locate something at the bottom of the ocean floor. Right. Okay. So there's a, an amazing article on CIA.gov about this. If you guys want to uh, look at that, feel free. There's also a, an incredible video to go along with it, which I actually didn't see until after I was completely done with my notes okay and come to find out the intro that i have which was one that i just created on my own if you watch the video the woman who was describing this event that took place project azorian she actually describes the crane game that was one of the inspirations i'm like oh my god there we go so i hopefully uh, the cia doesn't doesn't ding us for for uh you know, copyright or infringement or anything like that, because I promise you this is something I did before I saw the video. But anyway, the and story... I just like to say, too, yeah. a caveat to this. This is Phil Schaff's story. I'm just kind of <laughs> sitting by listening to it. So if that is the case, I'd like to slip that in there, too. Go ahead, Phil. <laughs> Great. No pressure. Uh, are you going to put my address on there next? Maybe. Maybe. Um, so let's, let's talk 1968 when the story begins. A Soviet submarine carrying three nukes Three nuclear-armed ballistic missiles sails from the naval base in Russia, and it's taking up its peacetime patrol station in the Pacific Ocean northeast of Hawaii. So soon after it leaves port, the submarine and its entire and entire crew were lost. Um, and the details of that, I, I really couldn't find. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they lost, you know, communications with uh, how you lose. Maybe uh, I, I don't know if it's sonar or whatever it is, but they've lost connection completely. Um, so after the Soviets abandoned their extensive search efforts, now doesn't that sound like the Soviets? Yeah. Yep. You know, um, the U.S. locates the submarine mm. about 1,800 miles northwest of Hawaii on the ocean floor. Ready for this? 16,500 feet below wow. sea level, or excuse me, below the surface, which equates to around 11 Empire State Buildings. So it's funny because last night, just last night, I'm reading a, um, a book to, to Jojo, my daughter, and um, in the book itself, it said that around 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in water. And we've explored about 5% of our oceans. 
five percent. Five percent. I mean, yeah, I've heard we we know more about our our solar system than we do our own oceans, but that's that's unbelievable. Five percent. You, you and I were just talking actually just just yesterday watching a documentary on subs, and you forget yeah. the pressure that that you know the depths will put on on something like that. And and maybe there there wasn't a scope of reference until you heard about the the Titanic yeah. disaster. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. the the submarine that went down mm-hmm. to try to get the Titanic, but. Um, you know what's it, to put this also in perspective too, is the average depth of the oceans is around twelve thousand feet. So that's two point two miles. Average. So, average. That's crazy. Yeah. So you go down a little bit further to sixteen thousand feet. I mean, you're talking a massive, uh, you know, almost three miles down. So I guess the question then would be, how did the U.S. find it and the Soviets just give up on it? And and what's what's really interesting is they were drawing on acoustic signals. From apparently a huge, pretty much sprawling network of underwater hydrophones, hmm. which were installed in secret during the 1950s. Now we've talked about this before. The technology that they uh, came up with in the in the Cold War era is just unbelievable. Yeah, it's way ahead of its time. Completely. So they're passively listening to submarine traffic through these hydrophones, and the Navy, the Navy identified the likely death of this K-129 nuclear sub. So from that. They triangulate its approximate position and dispatch the USS Halibut to locate the wreck. And sure enough, they found it. They're just doing it for the Halibut, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my gosh. Podcast listeners. Come on. That, that was seriously impressive, though. I All appreciate right. it. Thank you. Chalk it up. We're going to make a T-shirt out of that one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So recognizing the immense value of the intelligence, I mean, this intel that they could gather from the sub, if they could just hide it from the Soviets that they've located it, uh, you know, they, the, the strategic capabilities that would be gained if the submarine was recovered, the, the CIA jumps on this opportunity. They agree to lead such a recovery effort, and they get the support from the DOD, the Department of Defense. So CIA engineers face a pretty daunting task. So let's just map this out. You have to lift this 132-foot-long portion, by the way, it's 1,750 tons, all right? Not pounds, but tons of this wrecked submarine from the ocean floor three miles below, and you have to do it under total secrecy. And I mentioned this quickly. They call this project Project Azorian, and I'm like, why, why would they pick Azorian? They, right. they picked it out of like a Rolodex. It was just a random name that they picked. Uh, for those of you that are wondering, like, why would you pick Azorian? So in 1970, a team of CIA engineers and contractors determined that the only technically feasible approach was to use a large mechanical claw to grasp the hull and a heavy-duty hydraulic system mounted on the surface ship to lift it three miles Mm -hmm. from the ocean onto the surface and onto the deck. So the weight that you you just gave us, Phil, does that take into consideration that's just the the sheer weight of the submarine and yeah. not, doesn't take into consideration the pressure of the water on top of it. I, right. Yeah, okay. that's true. I didn't even calculate because, that. Because, I mean, you, yeah. you think about that, too. It's like not only does it weigh just a, a, a huge amount of tonnage, but then you have to pull it up through that water. Correct. This would yeah. be a tough task in 2024. Correct. Yeah. And by the way, I'm impressed that you used 24 because I'm still in 2023 hey, mode. I've written I was conscious multiple, it, yes. multiple things and mm-hmm. said it out loud. We're still in 23. But so I think that the big thing, though, is that, all right, so let's say they, they find a technical way to do this. Mm-hmm. You still have to keep it under secrecy. They right. need a cover. And they need someone to own the ship because if you want to keep the Soviets from the no, 
then it couldn't be the CIA that is owning the ship. So the owner, it was decided, should be Howard Hughes. Wow, okay. The businessman. Now, it, it fits. And at first, you're like, Howard Hughes? Eh. The businessman was obviously rich. He was famous, and he was eccentric. And he did audacious things that he really didn't care what people you know, think or thought of him. And, and he spent years, to give you an example, he spent years building the world's largest airplane, the Spruce Goose, out love, of wood. Love it. <laughs> love it. It only flew once. Mm-hmm. But he's going to do it just because he's got the money, he's got the time. Why not? Yeah, why not, right? So he was a, a great patriot. He's got a history of supporting government projects, including a few for the CIA. So this was, this was awesome. This was, this was the guy. He's going to be the, quote, owner of the ship. But it was, you know, all a cover. So with this instant agreement from Hughes to be the front for Project Azorian, the custom-built mining ship, this is pretty cool, was named the Hughes Glomar Explorer, mm. a.k.a. Clementine. And I, then I'm like, Clementine? Why Clementine? Ready? In a cavern in a canyon excavating for a mine lived a miner, 49er, and his daughter, Clementine. Clementine. Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Come Clementine. On. You were lost and gone forever. That's why they came up with the, the name Clementine. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So a commercial deep-sea mining vessel built and owned by billionaire Howard Hughes also needed a cover story. So what was the story? You have the cover of the ship, but now you need the story. What's the story? Hey, listen, all we're doing is we're conducting marine research at extreme ocean depths, and we're trying to mine manganese nodules that are lying on the ocean floor, the sea bottom. Seems feasible. What? Yeah, why do you need manganese nodules? Well, at this point, you know, electronics is becoming way more popular. Mm-hmm. Apparently, these are really good for uh, electronics. Okay, so the ship would have to have the stability, the power, uh, and the cover to do this unbelievably monumental task. It was constructed over the next four years. The ship included a crane, very similar to an oil rig, um, a pipe transfer crane, two tall docking legs, a huge claw-like capture vehicle, a center docking well, which they would call the moon pool, which they would be large enough to set the uh, portion of the sub in the middle, and then doors to open and close the floor of the ship. Wow. So you are talking just an unbelievable undertaking. So to preserve the mission's secrecy, the capture vehicle was built under roof, loaded onto the ship from a barge that was submerged underneath. So it's just unbelievable secrecy. With these special capabilities, the ship would conduct the entire recovery underwater away from view of other ships, aircraft, or spy satellites. So check this out. The heavy lift operation was pretty complex, obviously, but laden with risk. So while maintaining its position in the ocean currents, the ship had to lower the capture vehicle by adding 60-foot sections of supporting steel pipe one at a time. So the process is going to be, it's, it's not going to be one-day operation. You're going to have to do the 60-foot section supporting steel pipe and lower it down one section at a time. When it reached the submarine section, the capture vehicle then had to be positioned to straddle the submarine. Okay. And then its powerful jaws had to grab the hull. Okay, the ship had to raise the capture vehicle with the section of, of its clutches by reversing the lift process and removing those supporting 60-foot pipe sections one at a time until the submarine was securely stowed. I'm, I'm wondering if this, I'm interested to see where this is going, Phil, because as you explain this, it makes sense. But I'm wondering if this is one of those scenarios where it's a lot easier, hey, it sounds good in theory, but in practice, there's also a lot that can go potentially You're catastrophically right. wrong. Yeah. You so you can walk right. me through the physics of it, but until it's actually done, 
that's a different story. Now, for our listeners, you're probably going to have to go back and, and re-listen to what I just explained, or you can just get a visual here. Because mm-hmm. for me, I had to read through this three or four times before I could actually conceptualize right. what they were actually trying to do with these 60-foot sections. So here's here's the, um, the CIA version, the analogy that they gave to give us an idea of what kind of task was ahead of them. So you imagine standing at top of the Empire State Building with an eight-foot-wide grappling hook, okay? And you have a one-inch diameter steel rope. You have to lower the hook to the street below, snag a compact car full of gold, then lift that car back to the top of the Empire State Building. And on top of that, you had to do it without anyone noticing. That essentially describes Mm -hmm. Project Azorian and what the CIA had to do. So... They sailed from Long Beach, California. The Glomar Explorer arrived over the recovery site on July 4th, 1974. They conduct salvage operations for more than two months under total secrecy. They reached their destination. Here we go. The processes began. They deployed the claw even. Every step forward, though, seemed to bring two steps backwards. You know, some, something would break. It needed to be fixed. The sea is churning, and, of course, weather was a nuisance. And then on July 18th, who shows up? The Soviets. So Clementine is already making its long, slow journey to the bottom of the ocean when the Chasma, a missile range instrumentation ship, approaches the Explorer. It circles, it sends a helicopter over to to take pictures of the deck, and that's why the more research I did about this Glomar Explorer, the the Clementine, they even had mailbags that were looked like mining vessel mailbags. Mm-hmm. So it, it never had, it had everything, uh, the Hughes Glomar Explorer, it never mentioned anything about the CIA, obviously. Um, but they radio in for some information. Hey, what are you guys doing here? What's going on here? So the captain replies, hey, we're just a mining ship. The Chasma somehow believes them. They left a day later. So, all right, we're, we're in the clear. Let's keep going. Two days uh, on and the recovery was well underway. A second Soviet vessel arrives. This time it was a small tugboat called the SB-10. So by this point, there was no time to waste. The captain was dealing with un- the, this unwanted visitor, which came you know, pretty erratically and, and unexpectedly. And they're, they're, they're actively harassing the Glomar Explorer. Preparations for the salvage hey, were continuing operations. It's still under secrecy. So operators in the, control, in the control room are using live footage. They're using sonar. They're using small thrusters underneath the water. They have uh, seawater hydraulics because if you pump your own water in, that's too much weight on the ship, and uh, you have the water power anyway, so you're pumping water from the ocean into these hydraulics to operate the crane itself. So you're, you're finally positioning the claw over the sub. They touch down, and now here we go, what they call the grunt lift. So cheers are erupting in the room as the claw is starting to lift the largest piece of the sub containing all of the valuable material, all the intel. And it's basically prying it out of the mud. Mm -hmm. So now it's just a waiting game. So you're retracting the pipe. You're you're pulling up the claw. This could take days. You know, fortunately up top, the captain finally managed to to shake away the SB-10 Soviet um, uh, managed sub or excuse me, the, 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 the boat. Project Azorian is in the clear. Then disaster strikes. So we got days into the lift, more than two-thirds of the pipe retrieved. Several of the fingers on the Clementine hook, the the grappling hook there, breaks. And it sends most of the K-129 hurtling back towards the seabed. So the CIA director, William Colby, ordered the explorer to make another attempt, only to be told that this was 
absolutely impossible. The claw was broken. But if the CIA wanted to try it again, it would have to be not until next year. Mm. So the Glomar crew successfully hauls up a portion that remained in the capture vehicle. So they do have some of the contents. And among the contents of, of that recovered section were bodies of six Soviet submariners. They were given a formal <clears throat> military burial at sea. In a gesture of goodwill, director of uh, the Central Intelligence, Robert Gates, presents a film of the burial ceremony to Russian President Boris Yeltsin in 1992. But almost immediately after the disappointing recovery effort, planning begins for a second mission to recover that lost larger portion. But a bizarre and totally unforeseen occurrence, however, had already started a chain of events that would ultimately expose the Glomar's true purpose and make another mission impossible. Hi, and welcome back to the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Hornder here with Phil Schoff. Phil, you've mentioned uh, to our, our listeners in the past that um, we, we record these episodes and then we look at our schedule and you uh, you know set them up uh, accordingly. And um, I'd be remiss if I didn't want to mention that uh, uh, happy birthday to my wife, Erin. Hey, Erin, happy this, birthday. Uh, yeah, early uh, February. Her, her birthday is February 8th. So I want to make sure I, I get a nice birthday shout out to her. And uh, Phil, you, you gave us a really interesting espionage uh, Cold War story, and you kind of, for lack of a better word, left us hanging. Mm-hmm. All right, you, True. you know, things had gone well up until this point, um, but not so much now. I mean, I, yeah. I think with all the obstacles that they had to overcome, it was a matter of time. But things are starting to kind of fall apart. Yeah, you know, with this operation. So where we left off, um, yeah, you, you have the, the claw starting to break. You have a lot of attention by the Soviets. They seem right. to to move away from that. So they, you, you distract them a little bit. You give them some false information. They, they somehow believed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now here we are. We're at the imp- impossible task of saying, okay, well, you have this broken claw. You, we want to recover for intel purposes, obviously. Can we do it? And they said, hey, it's going to take about a year. Oof. The problem, though... Um, is the expense. That's mm-hmm. one of the major problems. So the expense is about $800 million for 1970 standards. That would be considered uh, about $4.7 billion today. That's that's crazy. So that's a lot of taxpayer, taxpayer money and yeah. a lot of explaining to do if this story ever broke now. And there's no guarantee that this is even going to accomplish what it sets out to do. 100%. There's a good chance it probably won't. Now here's the other problem. Mm-hmm. I mentioned if it gets the cover blown right well unfortunately let's just talk about that for a second because here's a secondary problem with this in june 1974 this was right before the glomar set sail unbeknownst to the people that were working on this thing is you know i mean remember july 4th is when they set sail so about a month before thieves broke into one of the hughes offices in la and stole secret documents one trying uh excuse me tying howard hughes to the cia and to the Glomar Explorer, okay? They were pretty desperate to recover this document, but the CIA calls in the FBI. The FBI uh, enlists the LAPD, and that search draws a lot of attention. Uh, By the autumn of 1974, the media starts to pick up rumors of this story. So the unfortunate part for Project Azorian is while this espionage mm-hmm. is happening to to remove that submarine from the ocean floor right. unbeknownst to them the story is the story is already breaking 
and the media is starting to put these, these pieces of the puzzle together. So the director of the Central Intelligence uh, at the time was William Colby. He personally appealed to those who had learned about Azorian, please don't disclose the project. And for a while they did cooperate, but on February 7th of 1975, the LA Times publishes an account that made connections between the robbery, Howard Hughes, the CIA, and this recovery operation. And then after that, investigative reporter Jack Anderson broke the story on national television, mind you, asserting that Navy experts had told him the sunken submarine contained no real secrets and that the project was a waste of taxpayers' money. Well, journalists flood the Long Beach area where the Glomar was preparing for its second mission. Um, The Ford administration, ready, neither confirmed nor denied any of the stories in circulation. But by late June, the Soviets had assigned a ship, here we are, to monitor and guard the recovery site. So to give you a little timeline, that's the point when that first mm-hmm. site you know, becomes under Soviet surveillance. So now the, the Glomar's cover is blown. The White House is canceling further recovery operations. So once those that hand broke, once the claw broke, the White House, they, they ask, hey, how long of a timeline? We're saying, hey, it's going to be a, at least a year. Right. That's when the White House is like, listen, we can't do it anymore because they've already blown our cover. Yeah. yeah. So pretty pretty uh, bad situation, for lack of a better term, for, for the Glomar. But the very brief covert career being now over of the Glomar, and after some experimental ocean mining voyages sponsored by a consortium of industry leaders— it was, as they said on the CIA website, which I think is pretty pretty interesting terminology, it was mothballed for over a quarter century. So in the late 1990s, a U.S. petroleum company restored the ship for use for deep-sea oil drilling and exploration. It was renamed the GSF Explorer, and the ship is still being used for that purpose. So if anyone has been listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, they already lied to us once. Right. Is this really still being used for that purpose. I think that that could, you know, that could be cause for some speculation, especially from our adversaries. And it could you say that Project Azorian failed to meet its full intelligence objectives? Yeah, most likely. We maybe learned some things about underwater exploration or something like that, or maybe being covert. I don't know. Um, but it's considered to be one of the greatest intelligence problems of the Cold War. Wow. But what can we take from this historically speaking? All right, and this is a pretty interesting side effect from this story, Phil. Project Azorian still remains an engineering marvel. I mean, it, the, the fact that they're doing this in 1974, 75 is, is pretty astronomical. It's incredible. It advances the state-of-the-art deep ocean mining, uh, heavy lift technology. But there's something I got to add to this because this is a caveat that I didn't expect. I mentioned something about the White House and their response and the FBI, their response I cannot, excuse me, I can neither confirm nor deny. That statement is actually known as the Glomar response. Really? Yes. I never knew that, but once I delve deeper into this, here we are. And uh, yeah, so now anyone who's listening to this episode and you hear either the White House, press secretary, or anybody saying, I can neither confirm nor deny that, that actually taking place, you can say, oh my gosh, there's the Glomar response in response to this Project Azorian podcast. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, I'm Phil Horander, and I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks.